Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 to 24. This is Jesus speaking. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You may be seated. Well, beloved of Christ, I am thankful to be among you today. And I am convinced that um, both for myself and for all of you, that this gathering together, this coming as a body of Christ to corporately worship his name, to hear from his word, to sing his word back to him, that this is as vital to a healthy Christian life as is prayer or studying the word. And in fact, through most of church history, it was the gathering of the saints to hear the word preached and to sing songs, psalms, and spiritual songs together. That was the only place that they had access to the word of God. And it has been always considered crucial. And it is a shame that so many in um, our current day see the gathering of the saints as something that is optional, something that's not really necessary or um, easily set aside. Yet God considers it vital and experience teaches us that to the saints this is where we ought to be if we would be healthy and holy. Well, I ask that you would join me in prayer as we do prepare to once again turn to Matthew's Gospel to an admittedly uh, heavy passage uh, that we arrive at this morning. Father, I do thank you for this congregation. I thank you that I can be among them to, to sing with them, to pray with them, to study with them. Because I am confident that you will make me more like Christ because of this congregation. Because of their impact in my life, their watchfulness over my life, their encouragement, their prayers. Father, in the chaos that we live in, I pray that you would increasingly warm our hearts one to another, that we would see the necessity of close Christian relationship. In an age of darkness, we need the light. Father, I do pray that you would 
be merciful to us today as we, as we turn to your word. That your word would not return void. That you would bring repentance for sin. Encouragement in Christ. Increased faith for those who are struggling. And Father, I am so utterly thankful that this work is, is the supernatural work of your spirit. That it, it is not dependent on how clearly I speak, how winsome my demeanor may be, how perfect my selection of words might be. But your spirit uses your word to bring conviction of sin, to turn hearts towards Christ, and in those who will not believe, to heap condemnation upon them. But Father, may our, our hearts and minds be focused and serious as we come to your word with expectation that it will change us, that nobody hears the words of your gospel and remains unchanged. They are eternally made for the better or the worse. For all these things in Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. Well, we have before us this morning a text that very much seems and it really is two distinct sections of teaching, yet they are so closely related that I think it, it is good for us to take them as a pair. They both deal with the inability or the in unwillingness of the nation of Israel to believe and to respond to the message of the kingdom that had been proclaimed to them, even though they had been the recipients of the first and greatest prophet in 400 years, followed by the true Messiah of Israel who had been promised from of old and who did in his life and his ministry fulfill what the Messiah was promised to do. We're going to see that greater opportunity both in the testimony of multiple witnesses and in the multiplication of miraculous works had been given to these people so that they would repent and believe. And with the failure of the nation of Israel to repent and believe, with that greater opportunity that had been given to them, greater judgment would follow. So in the first part, we're going to see the way that John the Baptist and Jesus offered two distinct yet complementary emphasis of message and style of life and leadership. The rejection of both of them proved that there was no type of man, no style of leader, no prophet, no kind of Messiah that would have actually satisfied the people of that day. There was no kind of man that could have been given to them, could have been sent to them, no message that he could have spoken that would have motivated them to respond appropriately to the message of the kingdom. And the second part that we will cover establishes that the people remained unconvinced and unchanged, 
even though they had been given the kind of miraculous and mighty evidence that would have brought the most wicked nations in the history of the world to their knees in sackcloth and ashes. They have been given plenty of evidence, more than enough to make them liable before God. And where God's law has established that one can be determined guilty on the witness of two, uh, two or three witnesses or two or three independent lines of evidence, these people were given a continual stream of supernatural evidence in line with what they had been told beforehand to expect, and yet they remained unmoved. Well, after defending the great herald of the kingdom, as, as we saw last week in Jesus' defense of John the Baptist, Jesus pivoted to consider the significance of the combined ministry of himself and his older cousin. Verses 16 and 17, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Well, the recounting of both the deeds of the Messiah as Jesus gave as evidence to bring back to John, and the deeds of John as, as Christ went over to defend him before the people, recounting of these deeds caused Jesus to come to a point of lament, lamentation as he struggled with the people but to what shall I compare this generation? Of course, we only have to continue reading just a little bit to realize that wasn't him just reflecting on, on the joy or the, the thankfulness that he felt for this people, this generation. Clearly, this was coming from a place of frustration. He, he was frustrated with them like a parent who has tried everything they can think of with their child and, and gets nowhere. So clearly, in this context, the generation that Jesus was lamenting over, the generation he was frustrated with, was the totality of the people in that region where, with whom he had lived and ministered. They served as a representative of the nation of Israel as a whole. That is the normal way that we see that term generation. It's speaking of typically of some 40-year-ish age gap of a people, of a nation, of a region. Just like the, the generation in Israel that went into the wilderness, we actually get the ages of those, that everybody that was older than 20, that was the generation that died off in the wilderness. We know what that word means. He was speaking about this group of people. Specifically, in mind would have been those who were leading the nation astray or those who would have just simply accepted the status quo. Well, Jesus compared that generation to children playing a game, or perhaps playing a couple of games, that something that would have been common in that era and that the people would have understood, that the children would have gathered in public places and, and called on each other to enact common social events of the time. So in, in that era, uh, weddings and funerals are both very public events, things that would have gone through the cities and professions with, with dancing and singing and joyful, uh, joyful voices rising or in wailing and bitter moaning. They were, they were loud, 
public events, and children would play games where they would call out to one another and say, now act like it's a funeral, sing a dirge, or they would, they, would, they would sing something sad, and they would expect the other kids to respond and acting and, and wailing and moaning as though there was a, someone had died close to them, as though they were the professional mourners who made a living in that era by knowing how to scream out in agony as representative of, this, of the pain that a family was feeling. So that is the idea of the, these children. It's, Jesus compares this generation to the children that were calling that out one to another, and yet when they, when they called, where they played the flute and they were supposed to dance, nobody danced. And when they sang the dirge and people were supposed to wail and weep and lament, nobody did anything. So the distinctive ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist, those two ministries functioned much like the varied calls of these children playing their public games. These ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus were designed to bring about either celebration or mourning. And yet, that generation did not dance and they did not mourn. Remember that John arrived with a message of an impending judgment. He said, the kingdom of heaven is very near. It's close at hand. The, the axe is at the root of the tree. Judgment is falling. Therefore, repent and be made right with God before it falls. So by and large, John's message was that of, of singing the dirge. He was calling people to repent, calling people to lament of their sin, calling them to mourn. And yet, while many enjoyed the spectacle that this, this first prophet in four centuries provided, they did not go forth and live as citizens of the kingdom. They did not bear fruit of repentance. Now, Jesus said that blessed are those who mourn. That was in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Yet apparently, those who had received the kingdom of heaven, those who were blessed at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, were vastly outnumbered by those who did not. Because when John sang a dirge, the generation could not be made to mourn. They would not be blessed. Of course, there was more to the arrival of the kingdom of heaven than just lamentation and mourning. The day of the Lord meant both horror and unheard of gladness to the extremes on both ends. As great was, as was the need to mourn now that the kingdom of heaven had arrived was the reason for all who received the king to celebrate with gladness and rejoicing and dancing. If you recall, when John asked for evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus gave him the evidence that the poor and downtrodden had the good news preached to them that those who mourned really were blessed. Even those who were persecuted for Christ's namesake were still blessed and had every reason to rejoice and be glad because suffering for the name of Christ was proof that you were actually of Christ, was proof that you were actually in his kingdom and was the evidence that you would be richly rewarded in the age to come. 
The good news of Jesus also was accompanied by the removal of sickness and disease throughout that entire region. So the people were given every reason to rejoice at the arrival of Jesus. The sick were made well. Miracles were performed, astonishing wonders before their eyes. Even the dead were raised. And on multiple occasions, the hungry were fed. The flute was played for them, and yet they did not dance. So that generation could not be made to mourn, and they would not be made to rejoice. They would not see what was happening, and they acted as though everything was and would remain the same as it always had been. So Jesus continued in verses 18 and 19. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Well, that helps us picture a little better just what it was meant by one play, singing the dirge and the other playing the flute. Between the two of them, John clearly better represented the singing of the dirge. As Jesus told the crowd we looked at last week, John was the promised Elijah that was to come. John came in the spirit or with the, with the purpose, the kind of message of Elijah before him. And like Elijah, John lived a very hard and radical life. Like Elijah, his life, the way he acted, the way he ate, the way he dressed, all of that was a part of his message. So everything that he did from the way he looked to the way he acted was a part of the message that he was sent to bring to the people. A big part of that was abstaining from the basic comforts of life and to live in strenuous, a strenuous life in every way from where he lived to how he lived. And all of that accentuated the urgency of his message. That this man foregoed any kind of luxury or comfort in life. What he had to say was important and the people should listen. Yeah, we have already seen that people did not mourn to John's dirge. Initially, yes, they took great interest into him. We read passages where all of Israel was going out to see John, such that even the leaders of Israel were going out to see what is he doing? How can we take advantage or limit our liability to what he is doing? Yet ultimately, the people didn't want what John offered they didn't want his extreme lifestyle. They didn't want his message. And instead of, of his radical lifestyle being evidence and testifying to the truth of his message, the people discounted and said, no, he is, he is just demon-possessed. He is acting so strangely because of a demon. The man was good entertainment, but they did not have to take him seriously because he demanded more than they wanted to give. So they made the excuse and they rejected him. What about Jesus? 
Surely, if Jesus avoided the kind of extremity that John was known for, that turned people (laughs) off to John, surely then he would be better received. Right? John came in the style of Elijah. Jesus came much more in the style of David. Like David, Jesus had humble beginnings. He also surrounded himself with otherwise unnoteworthy and undesirable men. He didn't play by all the rules and the traditions of the people. He was a bold man and a man who garnered radical loyalty from his followers. Yeah, and through Jesus' itinerant ministry, he undoubtedly often went without food and without comfort, just as David did as he fled in the wilderness. Yet Jesus was not opposed to drinking and feasting when the opportunity arose. He had no problem celebrating. He and his disciples didn't hold to the strict rules of fasting that John and his disciples had. In fact, Jesus said it would have been inappropriate for them to do so. They even went to the home of known sinners. So Jesus lived quite differently from John, yet he received much of the same response. They said John was demon-possessed so that they didn't have to listen to him. And to Jesus, they said, nah, he is a drunkard and a glutton. He was too cozy with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's an unrighteous man. We don't have to listen to him. In all this, we see that there was no way to win with that generation. And that's the point that Jesus was making. John came one way, Jesus came another way, and the people found a reason to reject them both. They would not be made to mourn, and they would not be made to dance. Yet even though that generation perverted justice and called what evil what was good, the faithful lives of John and Jesus were ultimately the vindication of wisdom a testament against that idolatrous nation. Beloved, we must not be influenced by the estimations of evil men. Even if people rejected John and Jesus because of their actions, because of their messages, even if people made false claims about them, calling the Messiah of God a notorious sinner and the herald of the Christ a demon These men were vindicated by their righteous living. So let the wicked say all they want about how you live and what you believe. Do not be moved by them when they call your righteousness evil. Their standard is not God's standard. Prove by your right actions that what you believe is good and noble and true. And trust that no matter what happens to you in this life... Obeying God's commands will ultimately prove to be your vindication. If not in this life, then in the next. No true expression of righteousness will satisfy anybody who hates God. So if you would follow Christ, you will not be able to live your life in a way that you will be able to continually garner the praises of evil men.
The ungodly will always have an excuse why they don't have to listen to you or why they don't have to listen to your message. So live for God and let the world respond as it will. After rebuking that generation for failing to be moved either by John's strict asceticism or Jesus' much more warm and inviting camaraderie, Jesus turned his attention to the specific cities in which he had spent so much of his time. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. That generation had refused to be moved to mourning or rejoicing. They had refused the message of John and the message of Christ, and there was judgment that would follow their lack of response to the message of the kingdom. And yet, a special kind of warning followed those people who had been given the most reason to believe. This directs us to a, a consistent principle in Scripture. Where there has been more revelation or mercy or warnings or evidence or patience or chances, where, where more of those have been given to a people, there will be greater condemnation for those who do not obey the word of God. So the whole nation was guilty. That generation was guilty. And these cities had an even greater guilt upon them because Christ lived and ministered in their midst for so long. Turn with me to Amos 3, 1 and 2. You got Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You know, there might be a temptation at times to see the way that God speaks against the sin of Israel, to see the, the fired up wrath of God against his chosen people and think that somehow God is unfair or unjust because he especially singles that nation out. And yet the severity of God's wrath against Israel was tied to the unique and special, special relationship that he had with them. Of all the peoples on the earth, God had chosen them. Everybody fell in Adam, and everybody was deserving of death and was going to perish under the wrath of God for eternity without some interposition of mercy. That was universal to mankind, and yet, to Israel alone did God give the law and the prophets. They alone did he set his love upon and swear to be faithful. They alone received the promises and the hope of redemption. They alone were instructed in the character of God and what he required from men. And so, when Israel fell, they would receive a greater condemnation than the other nations. Because they had received more and they were going to be held accountable for more. That principle it was seen in the region of Galilee as well, especially in the time of the Messiah's earthly ministry. 
those who had been given greater light and yet remained unmoved would receive greater condemnation. Verses 21 and 22, Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Well, if you remember the names of these cities, Bethsaida was the city where Peter and Andrew and Philip were all from. And Chorazan was just a mere two miles north of Capernaum, the, the center and home base of Jesus and his disciples in this time. So this, re this region, typified by these three cities, was the epicenter of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was the location of the majority of his teaching, and it was the location for the majority of his miracles. The phrase, woe to you, is, is typical Old, fast, Old Testament fashion. It marked the warning and judgment upon those who stood in opposition to God's law and God's purposes. It was a warning of judgment and doom. The impact of these statements was found both in the pronunciation of woe against them and in the comparisons that were made to them. Woe to you. It will be more bearable for the most wicked cities you can imagine in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Why? Because you were given mighty evidences of power that would have brought those other cities to their knees, and yet you were not moved. If you look back in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon represented kind of the epitome of open rebellion against God, the epitome of idolatry and pagan worship. Much of this stemming from the way that Jezebel, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, so Sidon, Sidonians, the way that Jezebel led the northern kingdom after the worship of the Baals led them into radical depravity, radical idolatry, such that that nation never recovered and ultimately was destroyed, carried off into captivity, never to be reestablished. So she represented the idolatry that led to Israel's downfall. And those cities were full of her kind of wickedness. In fact, Jezebel was a product of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus told the crowds that if the miracles they had seen in Bethsaida and Chorazan were witnessed in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented from their sin. So God's people couldn't be made to repent of their sin. God's people wouldn't mourn when the dirge was sung. Yet these wicked, God-hating, idolatrous pagans would have. They would have responded like Nineveh to the warning that Jonah had given them. They would have believed the warning and a test that was attested to by the miraculous wonders. They would have wept, they would have wailed, they would have covered themselves in ashes, and they would have looked for any possible way to escape the doom that was so close at hand. Now as we look at, at, at this kind of repentance, I don't actually think that Jesus is talking about these wicked kingdoms that they would have repented in the kind of biblical, genuine repentance that we typically think of. I don't think he's actually talking about the kind of repentance that would have grieved over their offenses against God. 
That they had offended a holy God and pleaded for mercy, trusting in the mercy of God. That's, that's not the kind of sense we're getting here. We know that that kind of repentance only follows the supernatural work of God's spirit within. That is not something that can be drummed up by external circumstances. Yet we also know that there is a type of repentance that even wicked people who still do not love God are able to do. As in, they are able to stop doing what they had been doing. Remember, repentance is just to, to turn directions, to turn away from something and take a different path. So it is possible to lament, it is possible to weep, it is possible to wail and moan over what you have done simply because the consequences are too great for you to handle. Esau grieved over selling his birthright. Saul over his disobedience of God's command that cost him his kingdom. And Judas was so grieved over having turned over the Son of God for money that he gave back the money, went out to the field, and hung himself. I don't have any reason to think any of those men were, were the kind of repentant that brings about a change of heart towards God. Yet the consequences of their actions cause them to grieve, lament, to moan, to wail, and to turn. Like all worldly men, they grieve the consequences they were forced to bear on account of their actions, and they repented only of what caused their downfall, not of their offenses against God. So the point that I believe Jesus was making as he referenced Tyre and Sidon in a little while when he will reference Sodom was not that those miracles would have brought about the eternal salvation of those nations, but that even those wicked men, those wicked rulers, those wicked, God-hating, idolatrous pagans, if they would have seen before their eyes what God's people had been promised ahead of time and saw before their face in Christ, if they would have been witness to that kind of wondrous power, that would have driven them to take radical action. Even the pagans would have responded better to the arrival of Christ they would have recognized the monumental importance of what was taking place in their midst, and they would have responded. They would have believed the warnings because there was powerful signs testifying to their truthfulness. Even the wicked would have recognized the power of God in their midst, yet Bethsaida and Chorazan remained unmoved. And so the judgment that awaited those wicked cities of old will be nothing compared to what they would face. They had been given more, and they would be held accountable for more. Jesus continued in verses 23 and 24, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? Or, sorry, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, if the cities of Chorazan and Bethsaida were close and near to the ministry of Jesus, then Capernaum was at its very center. It was the home base of the messianic mission. The city was witness to countless healings, 
including a paralytic man being lowered from a roof and then being able to pick up his mat and walk out the door. The city was witness to the dead being raised to life, to Jesus being laughed at as the professional mourners were wailing and weeping in the streets and as he walked into the house and grabbed that little girl's hand and told her to rise. The city was witness to the blind seeing, the deaf hearing. It was witness to all the evidence that Jesus was confident would reassure John that he was in fact the Messiah, the promised one to come. And yet, nothing. The warning against these cities proves that while Jesus had garnered a mass following, while he had crowds continually pressed around him for much of this ministry, most of the people did not understand and they did not believe, even as Jesus said himself that he spoke in parables so that they would not see and believe and be saved. Actually, the rebuke for Capernaum isn't just what the other cities received, that they had so much evidence and remained unmoved. As was the case with the others, they, they did not move, but yet Capernaum had tried to exalt itself to the heavens. You look at Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. We're not, we're not going to look there right now. But you can look there, and that is a very vivid description of the king of Babylon believing that he had raised himself up to the heavens, that he had reached the place of God, and yet he was brought very low to the point where people would look over him and wonder, is this the man who had put, who had put men under his feet? That's the imagery that, that um, Jesus recalls or is drawing our attention to as he, as he brings the point there, would you be raised to the heavens? It's just as, as the fall of that great king of Babylon was great, so too would be the fall of Capernaum. And add to that the imagery that, just like with Chorazan and Bethsaida, that Tyr and Sidon would be, receive a more favorable judgment than they would, that if Sodom would have heard and seen what Bethsaida had seen and heard, then that city would remain until that day. Now Sodom, we, we, most of us may or, or may not have heard of Tyre and Sidon, but everybody has heard of Sodom. If the, if the former cities represented the height of rebellion and idolatry, then Sodom represented the height of corrupt passions and sexual depravity. It was the embodiment of rampant, out-of-control lusts and lawlessness. Most of us are probably familiar with the story. Abraham and, and his nephew Lot were too great of a company to remain together, so Abraham allowed his nephew to choose. Lot chose the easy path and went down into the pleasant valley and settled in the city of Sodom. Later on, angels of the Lord came to Moses and told him what they were about to do, to come and rain down fire on Sodom because of the greatness of the sins of that city and Gomorrah had risen up to the Lord to the point where he could not bear to allow those cities to stand. So they told Abraham. Abraham sought to interpose because of his love for his nephew. 
starting at a high number and all the, all ultimately going down to saying, if there are just 10 who are righteous, will you spare the city? Well, the angels agreed. They went down and they stayed with Lot. And while they were staying with Lot, to a man, every man, young or old, came and surrounded the house of Lot and demanded that these men would be handed over to them so that they could, in mass, forcefully violate them. Only a miracle act of power that blinded all the men of the city prevented the fruition of the lusts of the crowd. Needless to say, ten righteous were not found in the city, and God wiped it from the face of the earth. And yet, that wicked, perverse, depraved, perverted city would have survived if the mighty works that were done in Bethsaida had been done in her. Even they would have not been so hardened against the clear display of divine power as to remain unmoved at its wondrous display. In the city of Capernaum, the greatest faith that we really are presented with is the faith that came from a Gentile, a Roman centurion, who believed that if Christ would but say the words that he had the authority to heal his favored servants. That city had been given a greater light, and she would receive a greater judgment. So those who have received greater evidence or revelation about God and what he requires from man will be held responsible for the greater light that they have been given. That is a fact that cannot be avoided and it must not be neglected. So a natural question comes to mind. At what point would it be more loving to not tell people about Jesus, to not tell people about the gospel, because we know that if they reject it, they are simply going to face a greater condemnation? Well, that may be a natural question that comes to mind, but I think there's an obvious answer. But let's be sure about our starting point with that conversation. Because of the fall in Adam, everybody is born condemned. Everybody is born under the judgment of God, deserving of and destined for eternal destruction. However that might make you feel that everybody is born condemned, that is good. That is just. And that is glorious that that is true. Because that is the right response of a holy God to the sin of his creation. That does not diminish God's mercy, compassion, justice, or love. Not even by a little bit. That reality establishes the context in which we are able to see, understand, and appreciate God's mercy, compassion, and his love. That we can see his justice on display. So what that means is all men stand condemned already. Even if they never hear the name of Jesus, they never hear a single law of God, they never have any exposure to anything remotely Christian, all men stand condemned 
already. Men are conceived in sin. They are born in sin. They live in sin. They sin by their nature and they sin by their volition. There are no exceptions. The light of God in nature removes any excuse of ignorance they might try to claim, yet even that light in nature that is seen by everybody is simply suppressed in unrighteousness. So man in his natural and base state is damned. And the, con- and the uh, sentence is eternal. Well, I say that because we ultimately gain very little for someone to think that we are going to improve their eternal state by denying them the gospel which might bring greater condemnation upon them. And I say that because while we acknowledge that greater knowledge of God does bring greater judgment for those who reject it, we must also acknowledge that you cannot save somebody by refusing them the gospel by which they might be saved. Sinners cannot be saved apart from the proclamation of the gospel, therefore we must be faithful to speak the words of life. Rejecting the words of life brings greater condemnation upon the sinner. Therefore, we must be bold not only to show people how they might be saved, but to warn them that they are accountable for each and every evidence of Christ that they have been given. They are accountable for the knowledge of God that they have been shown. They are accountable for the works of God that they have seen in the lives of other people, and yet that leave them unmoved. So we must be faithful both to present the gospel and warn about the consequences of rejecting what God has called men to, what God has required that all men believe and do. Whether you acknowledge it or, or understand it or have heard it this way or not, all men are commanded to obey the law of God, not just Christians. Did you realize that God's perfect standard is universal? It's not only applicable to those who would accept his son and and claim to follow him as Lord. It is a universal standard over all creation. Even if Christians are the only ones who confess Jesus as Lord, he is Lord. He is King over all creation. All men are commanded to obey the voice of the Lord. All men are commanded to repent of their sin and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we preach the gospel, may we not present it as something that is as weak and just optional for a better life, but present it as something that is commanded by God that all men are obligated to believe and to obey. Even to those who do not believe, we proclaim the lordship of Christ and the wonder of the gospel. When we proclaim those things, we are just telling them what they are already obligated to believe and to obey. We cannot control how they will respond, and we dare not shirk that responsibility, lest we ourselves be guilty of not believing and doing what we have been commanded of what God requires of us. Well, the cities of Israel were in a unique place in redemptive history. We can't just make a direct comparison to say, well, this was true of those cities, therefore the same exact thing is true of us. That's, that's, a, that's always a temptation to read ourselves directly into the text without understanding the difference in context. 
Israel was given the patriarchs. To them were sent the prophets. They had the history of the kingdom, the promise of the king who would once again sit on David's throne over an everlasting kingdom. They had been given the sacrificial system that was the framework by which they would understand the ultimate sacrifice that would need to be made by the Son of God. The Messiah was to be sent to them. The fulfillment of all the hope and the prophecies that God had given them all through the time of their ancestors. And then the Son of God did come to them as promised. He performed countless miracles and wonders before a myriad of witnesses. He displayed authority and power over nature, over evil spirits, over illness and even death. He gave every proof that he was the one who was promised that salvation had indeed come to God's people. Everything had been prepared and then laid out on clear display for those first century Jewish cities. They had been given every advantage and every opportunity to hear, to see, and to believe. So that generation stands unique as there was never nor will there ever be another generation that was given such clear evidence about the Son of God. And yet that generation refused to dance and refused to mourn. So we cannot say that we here today are in the same exact place as those cities in first century Israel were. Yet we can say that as a nation and as a culture, we have been given more knowledge of and evidence for the kingdom of Christ and the power of the gospel than just about any other nation or culture in history. Can you think of any other nation since the close of the first century that has been given as much gospel light as ours has been given? This nation was established by men who wanted freedom to worship God according to their scripture-bound conscience. Our constitution, which really is the true monarch of this nation, was written under the influence of and according to the reasoning of the law of God. And among the founders of this nation, even among those who did not personally have faith in Christ and follow Christ, even they recognize the necessity of the Bible standards and influence if this project of this young nation was going to be a success. That the law of the land was completely unfitting of any people who were not a Christian moral people. Because of the biblically influenced beginnings of this country and the safeguards that were built into the system, this nation has known unprecedented success and flourishing in history. So much so that it has taken a number of generations of very intentional mass effort to undermine the heritage and to bring about the moral chaos that we see around us today. And yet even in moral chaos that has never been seen in history, we maintain the freedom to gather to worship. We maintain the freedom to evangelize. We maintain the freedom to boldly proclaim the name of Christ. Yes, those freedoms are being daily eroded. Yet they remain greater than in most any other nation in the world that enjoys today or has ever enjoyed. All because of the scripture's influence in the founding and in the history of this once great nation. 
So all that to say that this nation, and specifically the generations that actively turned against the greater light that had been shown, will reap a greater condemnation. Much has been given, and much has been squandered. And the weakness of the church and its members is largely to blame for allowing this decline into darkness and madness. We face the reality today that a minuscule fraction of society drives the majority of the cultural discussion. A small, minuscule fraction of the people. If even a portion of those who profess the name of Christ in this land, if even a portion of us were as committed to obeying God's law as these sexual radicals are to obeying their lusts, do you honestly think we would be in this place? This nation will bear a greater judgment. And if that is true, just think about how much more judgment there will be for those who have been in and among the church and have yet not repented and believed. If those who have benefited from the belief of the gospel by past generations are more liable because of the light they have received, how much more so will those who have sat under the preaching of the gospel and have seen its power in the lives of other believers? That is the warning that any of us here must face if you are hearing these words and have yet remained unmoved. So to any who have yet failed to believe, yet failed to dance when there have been calls for rejoicing, yet failed to mourn when there have been songs of lament, you have no excuse. You have been given greater light, and you will be held more accountable for your actions. Whatever anyone may tell themselves is the reason that they do not believe the reason they do not believe what they already have seen proven to be true, that reason they hold on to is simply an excuse. To learn from the failure of Capernaum, it isn't the tone of the message or the manner of the preacher. And I'll be honest with you, that gives me a great deal of comfort. It isn't about me. It isn't about how clearly I speak, how pleasant I am to be around. I could be like John or I could be like Christ. And those who will not believe will not believe because they are hardened against God, not because of the inadequacies of the messenger. It isn't the lack of evidence that holds anyone back who has been shown the light. It is a rebellion against God, plain and simple. So if that is true of you this morning, then I call on you to repent. I, I command you in the name of the Lord to repent. And if you do believe, then I command you to go and be forth. Go forth and be faithful and to command others to believe what they are obligated to believe. To brightly shine the light, even though it will add greater condemnation on all who deny it. Because wisdom will be vindicated by her actions. Today is the day to mourn. Today is the day to dance. Today is the day to embrace the kingdom of Christ.
Father, we are thankful for your word, even when they are hard words. Thankful even for the warnings of judgment. Father, we pray that we and those we love and those in the community around us to whom we might influence would not be a stiff-necked generation that cannot mourn or cannot dance. Father, use each of us as you have made us and designed us and have you have how you have refined us to go out and to play the flute or to sing the dirge, to in all things proclaim Christ and the wonder of the gospel. And Father, may it not be true of the generation around us that their guilt will only be compounded because they have rejected even more light. May the generation around us be as Nineveh who wept and lamented when they heard the warning of judgment. In all things we trust and rest in your good providence. Your wisdom is higher than ours. Make us faithful. Let us rest easy, knowing that you are in control. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.